Welcome to the sixth episode of Junto Club. On this episode, we discuss the problem of having too much liberty and overchoice, our New Year's resolutions, and the book One Billion Americans. I also find out that I have an unconscious bias against Nebraska. For any questions, comments, or to give us some facts about why Omaha isn't terrible, email juntoclubpodcast at gmail.com. This is Junto Club. All right, this is the Jinto Club. We are modeling this off of the original club Benjamin Franklin made to pursue intellectual growth by bringing together people, you know, to challenge their ideas and study interesting topics and philosophy and business and politics and science and the like. So we're just trying to do a very poor imitation of that, basically. Welcome to the Jinto Club. <laughs> nice. Meeting six. Meeting six, New Year's 2021. 2021. Oh, yeah, that's right. New Year Day. Mm. Yeah, New Year's Day 2021. Did I, did both of you stay up till midnight to ring in the new year? I did. Yeah, I, had, I was, I was, uh, yeah, I was just having a Zoom uh, night, be chatting with my friends, so as well, so yeah. I was about to say, I was on a, we'll say exciting Zoom party, but like it actually, everyone like hang off before it even became midnight. And then me and Kit just like did it on our own, like did like the countdown. Oh, because you were one hour late, right? Well, yeah, I guess some, a lot of the people who were on it were in central time too. So, yeah. mm. but some people had like work and stuff and wanted to go off. So then we just kind of like dispersed. Gotcha. Yeah. No, I was. I Skyped with my brother, so we actually were on from basically like 11 p.m. east to like 3 a.m. or midnight west. So, dang. Oh, man. What do you guys talk about? Just, I don't know. Just, well, I mean, mostly what was going on on the TV. So, like, we had the New Year's Rock and Eve on. So, you so. need to get your brother on this podcast, apparently. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> No, he's, he's, it's funny because he, he, generally speaking, is not like super, super talkative, but I don't know. I mean, like he, he was, play, I think he had video games going on in the background too. So, well, it was as, a mix long, of, he, as long as he has controversial ideas like you, yeah, you that's, that's right. That's right. That's what we're looking for. All right. So, so, oh, yeah. What's the cat's name, Matt, on your lap? This is Rory, short for Rorschach. Hold on, let's see if I can get because we thought his face kind of looked like a Rorschach test a little bit. Oh, I can see that. Voice also, over. just Batman, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah, I would go Batman. <laughs> what? Why is Rorschach? Uh, Rorschach tests are those like ink blot. They're like black ink blots on a white paper that like psychologists would used to use, and it's kind of like abstract. And then they'd be like, "What do you see in it?" Kind of similar to like what you imagine the cloud looks like. Yeah. I don't know if it's a legit thing anymore. I ima- it sounds like something they wouldn't do these days, but I don't know nothing about psychology or psychiatry. So I feel like they might still do them. I feel like it's a common enough trope still in modern entertainment that they, I you know, know, that's the only place I see it though. Yeah. Like, right. Like TV shows and movies, things like that, which makes me less confident that it's actually used. 
I mean, I bet they still do some form of like word association or something like that. So. That's true. Yeah, that seems plausible. So you have a guy. You you guys never gone through net test? No, I've never done it. Hmm. No. Got you. All um, right. Yeah. Oh, cool. all right, Rory Rochet. Welcome to the podcast, I guess, Rory. He's been <laughs> here every episode, okay? I'm pretty oh, sure right. I've given him a glance on camera every single time. All right. Not that <laughs> our many listeners get to see the video, but... <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So, per usual, I guess, tradition, we're going to start with a, a quote. Now, I, I'm, still, I'm a little bit puzzled from ben, Benji again. Mm-hmm. No, no. So, the quote is... Quote, nothing brings more pain than too much pleasure. Nothing more bondage than too much liberty. End quote. Mm. I think I understand the first part. The second part is the part I'm, I'm a little bit puzzling about. What do you guys think? All right. So I think I can make up an interpretation that's a bit of a stretch, but... <laughs> Have you ever, I think it's called like the paradox of choice. Have you ever heard about it? Mm, Yeah. Where like when you have more choices, sometimes like your satisfaction goes down, even though in theory, like if you had two choices, right. And then you get like five more, your satisfaction in the end result should only go up. Right. Cause you either still have the best option was there originally, or you got a better option. So in like a very purely rational and they're like, that should only be better, but for a lot of people, you get more choices and actually their like overall satisfaction with their decision or what they buy or whatever goes down just because I guess there's more stress about making the right choice and what you're losing out on. So you could argue, and I think I've even seen people argue something along the lines of like too much freedom is bad because, you know, it's too much for people to decide. There's too much, you know, stress or other issues. I've heard, I remember this going back to people saying school uniforms are good for like high schoolers because then you don't have to worry about what you dress up with, like what you dress, how you dress yourself every day. And I was like, I was one of the kids who didn't care anyway, but hey, you know, not every someone, kid was like that. You're talking to someone who wants to start a company that only sells white t-shirts. You know, you're right. This is straight up your idea. So, um, so that's the only interpretation that comes to my mind. And, you know, it's weird because the paradox of choice, I've never really heard it called is like bondage, but like I have heard like negative things of choice or freedom described. Right. Random. No, no. I mean, I, I agree with that interpretation basically. I mean, I, I was sort of thinking along the lines, I, I guess when it, using the word bondage, I guess if you consider like if you have absolute freedom to do anything and you know, there are essentially infinite options, then you're essentially like, I I guess, quote unquote, like a slave to like, or or like you you have, I guess you're wasting time, right? Like you, you essentially are frozen in time because you have to spend so much time debating between the different option, as opposed to if you're just given a couple of different options, you make a decision. So, um, so I guess like with, and I guess in, in certain cases, like the, your options actually do, I guess, have less value in a way because essentially the work that it takes to make any decision, if you have like a lot of decisions versus a few, the work it takes to pick, like, I mean, literally, if you think computationally, right? Like if you have a hundred thousand options and you review each one, then 
you you actually have to look at a hundred thousand elements. But if you have uh, you know, a hundred options and you look at each one, you are only looking at a hundred. If the value you get from like an option you select out of the hundred is, you know, like value equals two, and the option you get overlooking a hundred thousand is only value equals three, then I mean the amount of energy I guess it took to look at you know, quite literally a thousand times uh, more things is only like 50% gain. So, mm, okay. So, and I, guess. and I would say it's not as simple as just saying, well, I'm just going to randomly pick a hundred of the hunt, you know, thousand or 10,000 or whatever. Um, because people have a, a lot of people have a strong fear of missing out. Sometimes it's called like FOMA, just mm. the acronym. So, like, you know, if you just randomly, like, I'll just pick 100 and not worry about the rest, a lot of people will feel anxiety over what they might have potentially not found or saw or whatever. So, for human right. psychology, it's not that simple to just say, like, well, I'll just, you know, forget about the other choices. Yeah. So, if you have the liberty to, like, essentially see all the options and potentially choose all options, then you're sort of frozen by the fear of missing the best and you actually lose out by considering all of them as opposed to if you have some degree of like control over your life, I guess, where it's like, here are your options, basically like a parent saying like, you can do A, B, C and that's it. Like then you, it's easy. It's an easy choice basically, or a faster choice. <laughs> mm. So yeah, decision. I think I heard in a term called decision paralysis, mm. uh, <clears throat> too much, too much options. You can choose. Um, that kind of made me uh, remind me of like that's one one of the reasons I don't like <laughs> subscribing to Netflix. There's way too many <laughs> things to watch. I just like spending time just scrolling through everything and just like just give up in the end, right? That's why we just need to trust the AI more and just pick the, the first show it recommended. Yeah. yeah. So no. yeah. So does that mean the reverse control control is freedom? Control is freedom. I guess, actually, no, no, one of my favorite quote is that discipline equals, equals freedom, freedom, right? From one of the, one of the Navy Seal, I mean, Navy Seal, uh, Jocko Willink. That's, mm-hmm. that's his motto, like freedom. I mean, discipline equals freedom in, in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I've certainly heard that, like, when it comes to, like, kids who are, out of control, like a lot of times, like child, like psychologists or like different people who like specialize in childcare will say like kids are happier when they have like a structure, like at home. Mm. And like, it's not just like as much as they may want, like essentially anarchy and to be able to do what they want. There is some, something to be said for like some degree of structure and some degree of like, no, you need to get a, like a sufficient night's sleep. You need to do your work and that like basic things. So, and isn't discipline just imposing your own structure on yourself? Right. right. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yeah. Think about the more that. you know. <laughs> <laughs> actually, um, just just going on a structure. You're talking about when you are raising kids, right? Uh, structure actually, this might be bad for for the kids. When, for example, now you go to like elementary school, to high school, right? You Go have a structure, and everybody tell you what to do. You just do it, right? Right. But that's why when you hit college, and like people just sound people, like, even though they did very well in like uh, high school, but they tend to then 
they they might do very poorly in college because suddenly they have our freedom to do anything they want. Like to, uh, they they don't have the structure, so they kind of have a uh, struggle in like deciding be their own basically like a manager in a way, right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, everything in balance, right? right? Like, you know, you want to give kids some structure, but you also want to give them opportunities to, you know, do their own thing, make their own decisions, try and fail. And I would imagine generally as kids get older, you want to keep upping the amount of like freedom and self-control they have, you know, mm-hmm. to do that. And also uh, I know like a lot of, uh, like, I don't know how many actual studies there have been, but like, I mean, it's becoming increasingly common to sort of have like in some childhood education, I guess, to have like a Montessori type school outlook, like uh, where the kids are able to have some degree of control over like the order they do things in or like what they focus on particular days and things like that. So that. And I mean, I know a lot of people like I honestly don't really know how beneficial it is versus how not beneficial it is. But I've heard a lot of people say that that is like uh, kids who have that type of education um, tend to fare better, I guess, down the road. Oh, yeah. A lot of a lot of like, Silicon Valley, you know, those like, uh, rich uh, tech people, they, they usually put their kids in to those uh, Montessori style schools. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, th- I think the idea is not like have less structure. It's more like having them explore, try to figure out what they are interested in learning. Like figure, I mean, just explore their own interest instead of giving them a specific curriculum for them to follow, right? To apply to everybody. Right, right. So there's some structure, but it's 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 a little bit more. It, there's flex to it. It's not like, as Matt said, everything in balance. So it's yeah. like if you need to learn you know, your timetables on Tuesday and comma use on Wednesday, that may be too much for some people. So. All right. Cool. So sounds good. So, uh, so next topic, should we move on to actually, uh, Oh yeah. My new year resolution. You, you, since it's new year, I guess, I think we should, maybe should talk about your new year resolution. It would seem appropriate. But after that, I want to somewhat dominate the podcast to talk about the book, One Billion Americans, if y'all are okay with that. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, all right, Shu, what's your your New Year's? One billion. (laughs) All right. But Shu, what's your New Year's resolutions? I think I will let you guys talk first. As is typical. Okay. (laughs) I mean, mine are very dull anyway. So, uh, Basically, I want to diet, get back in shape, and uh, worry less. Is worry less? Yes. So I mean, did you worry a lot this year? You yeah, oh, I see. Well, I could, I could definitely be, I guess, a high stress person. So, and I, I guess I want to qualify worry less with, like, my worrying is often very like. With is often um, planning focused. Mm. So like in this moment, I don't know what to do. But so like, I'm going to think about like, what I should do for the next 25 years, or what could go wrong in the next year or something like that. Mm. So I guess when I say worry less, it's more immerse myself in moments, and mm. not necessarily think about the future. So live in the moment. Yes, you need so. one of those artsy signs to like hang above your door yeah 
you have you have been saying that a lot, but have you? Is it because you haven't done? You notice your snap yourself have not been. I guess not been doing that. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I, with I think I excused it when I it was like when I was in the PhD program because it's like, of course, you have like this goal you're driving towards. So it's like, it's like, of course, you're going to sort of think like, what can I do to sort of get this done? What roadblocks might come up? And basically, uh, like, yeah. I mean, you you sort of want to accomplish that, like, because in a way, it's like it's hard for life to begin quote unquote, like if this big thing is hanging over your head, but like when it's done, it uh, like, you don't want to stay in that mindset. And I often like, I, I feel like this year I've noticed myself being like, okay, like I know I have these big goals still like, uh, like, like I say, sort of like eventually marriage, eventually kids, eventually buying a house or starting a company or whatever. But those types of goals are again, hacking off large portions of life. So I guess uh, essentially at this point, it's like, I feel it's silly to sacrifice. It's silly and unhealthy to sacrifice sort of like happiness and relaxation at that long, those long and intervals when, I mean, I've already done it to sort of ensure I have like a solid career and, you know, everything else in place at this point. So I might as well say, so it's more just like, okay, now rather than just like striving for, rather than striving for like accomplishment at this point, I want to at least take some time to uh, just enjoy as opposed to like, as like essentially be happy as opposed to feel accomplished once every decade. <laughs> mm. So uh, one more question. Do you have any specific plan on a like, practice to do that? Like anything that you have, like any, any kind of plan to, to make yourself into more living in the moment? I mean, I would say that, I mean, I've found with like previously dealing with anxiety, like mostly work related anxiety, like as part of the PhD and stuff, it's more of a, I guess, similar to like getting in shape, right? Like getting in shape, it's like, well, what's your plan? And it's like, well, go to the gym, like start with like all Monday is cardio or like jump rope, like Tuesday and Friday are deadlifts and you know, Wednesday and Sunday are pull-ups or whatever, you know, I mean, that's essentially your plan with anxiety. I guess the key thing I've found is it really is similar to working a muscle. So basically I guess when I catch myself in a moment of like planning uh, or, or sort of going down the rabbit hole of like, this is what can go wrong. It's sort of like grabbing it before it gets out of control and being like, okay, I'm going to shelve that right now because it's liable to go down a more anxious path, like an anxious and compulsive, like compulsive type thinking path. And I'm just going to do something like I'm going to do whatever I'm going to read or, you know, watch TV and, or go to bed if it's late Mm -hmm. and, you know, not go down that path. So it's more, uh, I guess taking a metacognitive approach and recognizing when that type of thinking might emerge and 
like grabbing it before it happens because I guess the more the earlier you grab it and the better you get about grabbing it, the more secondary it becomes for those thoughts not even to really happen. Have you, I see. Have you tried meditation? Or are you planning on doing it? <laughs> That's, I, I, so I have not, I guess, I, I, I can't say I've tried it really at all because I've never like had any formal real training in it. I, I mean, it would be, I've always been suspect just because my mind is very noisy sort of naturally. So it's That's, like. The, the, actually, the more noisy it is, the much, the, the better effect you're going to feel i think the more helpful to you because i feel that i'm for me on my mind i'm i feel that I'm, my personality too chill right mm-hmm. so if i meditate i won't get like the big change right and since your mind is very noise very hyperactive right you might get a very uh like big change like noticeable change and uh, actually like if you meditate right 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 yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree. Like, if I'm able to quiet my mind, the net benefit would be very large. So, yeah, I mean, all you need to do is actually running for me is a meditation as well. So, if you run, right, just don't listen to any music. Mm-hmm. Right? I think you probably run with music, but don't do Correct. it. You, so, next time if you go run, you know, that's the best way to start meditating. Just let your mind just go at, at wherever it goes. And all you need to do is just pay attention to it. Okay, you say, okay, my mind is thinking about this. Oh, I'm, my, I'm thinking about sex, porn, mm-hmm. all stuff like that. Food, you know, <laughs> you know just, just pay attention to your mind as you run. So I think that's, I think that's an easy way for you to, to actually start, right? So. No, I mean, that's very, fa- I mean, like during the PhD, so this year because the gym's been closed, like it's legitimately been hard to get like a good workout in. But I mean, I've found like walks and runs are some of the time I'm sort of most, my mind's most at peace. So, and, and the gym was definitely that place like during the PhD where my mind could sort of shut off for a while and I could injure myself in non-mental ways. (laughs) Yeah. All right. All right. I think it's time to move on to Matt. (laughs) Yes. Mm. Yes. I'm, uh, I'm rolling over my 2020, New Year's resolutions. Because in 2020, I was like, I'm gonna finish my PhD mm-hmm. and get conversational in Japanese, which I've done uh, neither. But <laughs> I've made, I'm not, I don't feel too bad about it because I made a lot of work or progress towards both those goals. So it's okay. Mm. Um, you know, this is a good reminder to be like, man, I really need to buckle down on uh, getting these final chapter revisions to Dr. Arkin, my advisor. Mm. Uh, yeah and then i don't know for japanese i've like over a few years now i've like done like kind of very slowly gotten a decent amount of the basic grammar and vocab but it's very soon i gotta get to the point where kind of start using it Mm. more immersively not just like studying it yeah because language like it can't be active knowledge that you have to like think about like remembering a fact it has to be something that just is intuitive so you have to actually like drill with it like a skill rather than something Mm. you just know so I got to like make that transition to actually get to the in point. Japan. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. don't think I will be, but <laughs> that's the best way to do, it, you know. That yeah. is. That is. But you know, we have the internet these days. Also, uh I don't think it's legal to fly to Japan right now from the US. Uh who knows when it will be. Yeah. Uh but, you know, there are ways. <laughs> there yeah. are ways I'll <laughs> smuggle myself in. I mean, you are walking remote anyway, so you can't walk anywhere. That's true. 
just go to Japan and work and then just go go down and then have you know order go to a restaurant you know eat ramen and then talk to the people there. Mm-hmm. I'll just tell you know my fiance I'm just gonna move to Japan for fun. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, you can go together. You know. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Tell her I've decided I'm not going to work for a few years and I'm teaching English in Japan. <laughs> yeah, that, that works <laughs> Making too. poverty yeah. salary in some random village. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Be like, why don't you give up your career path you've been working on for, you know, the last 10 years of your life to, you know, come do this with me. But yeah, so it's not that exciting, but it's fine. You know, probably a lot of people didn't quite hit all their 2020 goals. You know, mm-hmm. as long as you made progress and keep working at it, I'm not upset. How about you, Shu? So I guess um, I don't really have any specific resolutions. Part of the reason because I just came up, I usually don't set resolutions, kind of, not explicitly. But this year I came across uh, something by Tim Ferriss. He suggests like he doesn't do re- resolutions anymore, like New Year resolution. He, what he does is something called like past year review. Mm. Which he find it more like more useful, more actionable, right? So what you do basically, you basically look back in your past year, like break out, basically uh, take a like inventory of what you have done, right? If you have a calendar or notebook of nice stuff, that keep keep track of basically. So you basically have two columns, right? Positive and negative, right? And then in the positive column, you just say, okay, what happen in the uh, past year that you did or someone did to you or like it was positive to you like emotionally, physically, stuff like that, right? Make you feel good, right? So you just write those down. And the negative, of course, an object, like whatever you've done, like work down or stuff that like give you all anxiety, negatives, stuff like that, like give you negative emotion physically, you know, mentally, you know, spiritual, spiritually, stuff like that. And then you basically like you, in this year, in the, now you just have those lists and then this year basically try to focus on, you know, double down on those positive, the positive things, right? Maybe 20% of them, right? And then try to eliminate or do less of the negative basically. So I, yeah. So anyway, so those, are, I think that, that might, might help basically a different spin on a new year resolution. Yeah. No, I like that. Cause I've always felt like if you, if you sort of wait to January 1st to do something, like I always feel like that means you're not really that interested in doing it. Mm. And all my resolutions have always been like things I've like wanted to do anyway. And it's, it's kind of halfway to the idea you're describing where it's kind of like, Oh, I've been working on this. Like how far do I want to try to get in this year? It's Mm. not less, you know, I'm going to do this this year for the first time because it's a new year. Like that's going to be like my starting motivation. So I think it's, there's some similar concepts there where like, I mean, if, if there's something you want to do, you shouldn't wait. And if you, like, if you need a new, a year change to, to motivate yourself, I don't feel like you're going to be successful. <laughs> right. Well, that's the gym thing, right? Like 80 so, million people sign up and by February yeah. 40 or well, probably 70 million of those 80 have left. So, <laughs> so kind of like reviewing, you know, reviewing the year kind of takes a similar thing where you're using the year to kind of like mark progress rather than the, uh, you know, motivating yeah. uh impulse so i guess a uh, follow-up with that question is like for you like what is the most positive thing that you've done that give you the most positive like emotionally physically uh in the past year i'll start defend yeah. 
No, I mean, that's, I mean, I've done, I feel like I've, uh, this year has been like decidedly like either pretty positive or pretty negative. Like I've made a point of like, I guess seeing people even though like, or like, you know, I mean, I've kept my circle pretty small, but like during the, like before the quarantine, like I did make a point of like visiting friends and meeting some new people, like as the end of the PhD was in sight and I, like, I enjoyed that. So it's like, I mean, I think a decidedly positive thing that I want to keep doing is like making a point of like visiting different places, like visiting family, friends and meeting new people. And then, yeah. And obviously the end of the PhD was like the other decidedly positive thing. So I guess, uh, continue to like accomplish, like, do things that I feel are worthwhile and better me as a person. Mm. Mr. Super Any- Spreader traveling all over here. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, I've, I haven't uh, had COVID, so I, uh, I wear my mask. <laughs> anything negative that you've done, you did, that caused you a lot of negative? negative? Well, I mean, just I would go back to just the anxiety, sort of mm-hmm. like feel, feeling the need to fic- like figure out a solution to everything like everything as it comes up. So, uh, you know, so I guess, or feeling an obligation. Like if I see a problem, I need to think about like, how do I solve this? As opposed to there are certain problems that aren't mine to solve. And there are certain problems that uh may not rec- be able to be solved like immediately. So, and that's mm-hmm. again, so I, I mean, I, I agree with the point you raised sort of like, so that that's where my new year's resolution comes from where I'm like stress less and live in the moment. Mm-hmm. Cause uh yeah, I mean, it's something that I've, I guess I've been trying to work on recently, but uh, the new year is again, sort of the excuse or the uh, ability to start and say like, I'm intentionally monitoring this to see how well I can do over the next year. Mm. So. All right. What about you, Matt? All right, something positive. Blue, Georgia. That made my year. Let's go. But then, yeah, but that's not something you did. I voted in Georgia. Yeah, but what's so the- I did it. Yeah, but I guess more than I, you know. Yeah. Okay. Anything? Something else? Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, I got engaged. I guess that's kind of neat. Mm, okay. And just in case I- Kit listens to this, I have to say that. <laughs> but isn't that something that you can do like repeatedly in the in the this year? Like, I get, get engaged, engaged every year. <laughs> Shit, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> All right, Mike, cut this part. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. I don't have anything else super specific. I kind of sure. largely just continued doing the same things I was been doing the whole year. Mm. What about anything negative? <sighs> you, you, something that you've done that somehow it caused a lot of negative. Mm. Like a habit, you know? Too much Pornhub, stuff like that. Too much Reddit distracting me from writing because I hate, you know, get tired of writing and go on Reddit. We'll say that. Probably could have already been done by now. If it wasn't for that damn Reddit. Okay. Writing, like writing, I'll say, like the writing my conclusion chapter was pretty brutal. Like literally, I like it, it just sat there, and it's like a seven page chapter. It's not long at all, 
And literally it just sat there till arc and was like, are you ever going to send me your last chapter? And then I, <laughs> and then I literally wrote it in one night and he was like, okay, he's like, yeah, this is pretty like, it's the conclusion chapter. So of course there were not many corrections. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, All it's, right. It's a hard. All right. Shu, your biggest positive and negative experiences or actions? I would say, I would say it's the podcast, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, the podcast I've been doing, you know, talking to you guys and the other podcasts I'm working on. And then, yeah, and the other things like readings, you know, stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. that's actually a good answer. I enjoy doing this. So. Yeah, because I, because I, yeah, 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 yeah. I actually, I mean, I also sit down and talk about it. And like what, what was the, have done is very, give me very, a lot of positive. So, yeah. And, also, something excited about I think also learning at the same time as well. So yeah, and the negative, of course, is my working on my PhD. I guess <laughs> <laughs> I need to stop working working on it right now. So that's why I haven't been working on it for 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 a week or so already. So it's like taking a break. So maybe I just like working on it a little bit, but not too much, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was the holidays. Yeah, yeah. All right, so. Should we move on to one billion Americans? Matt, Matt you want to talk about it? Matt, That's right, because we've we've done a lot of talking about like personal growth and stuff so far on this podcast. Not as mm-hmm. much some of the other topics. So we're gonna get into politics now. My first <laughs> question is: One billion America Americans, are you pro or con? Mike Shu, what's your thoughts? Um. Well, I guess my initial reaction when, so you mentioned this book, uh, last week and my initial thought was like, okay, yeah, that's probably a terrible idea, <laughs> but, um, but you sort of gave us a preview of, of what, uh, it might look like. And I guess, and with respect to like, I guess our population density, it's like city, there are certain cities like New York. Um, and Los Angeles where it's like, there are just too many people already, but I, I have done a lot of driving over the course of quarantine and seen a lot of very, very desolate places. So, I mean, I could, I guess there is room to fit people. So, uh, uh, so I guess I'm not as against it as I thought, and I'll be interested to hear sort of the economic arguments you. So are you against or not, or not against are you pro or I'm, okay, I'll uh, just to be. You need a very just, strong opinion. Just strong let, opinion, loosely held. Yeah. All right. Well, just I'll let Matt convince me. I'll still be against. But what I, about but you? I'm not totally against. Oh man, I was gonna say I gonna be. If you are gonna going pro, I was gonna say I'm an immigrant naturally. I gonna be against it because I, you know. I made it already, you know, so I want to put a, put a letter up, right? Letter up. Burning the bridge behind. Yeah, them. exactly. <laughs> so since my is against it, I guess I'm, I'm, I guess I need to pro now. I'll <laughs> uh, see. So, all right. So I'll give the, the summary. Um, so the way this book started out, I was a little bit surprised because the, the premise is the America's the greatest country. Okay. And we need to stay the greatest country. Yeah, and by greatest country, mean he more or less means largest aggregate economic activity, mm, okay. and the threat is China, because okay. China has made some growth while also being several times more populous than us. To mm-hmm. the point where, if China even gets to have their average wealth per person to one third of our levels, they'll have surpassed us, 
And if they get to like half as wealthy of as we are on average, they'll be like a good bit past us. Right. So then they'll be like the lead economic player in the world. So I took this very patriotic, I guess, initial thing. And then, yeah. And then he basically made a lot of arguments for both improving the ability for people to have kids, basically adding more support because in like the modern economy, what an interesting fact that I didn't, everyone knows birth rates are declining, but what I, I didn't know is that the the reported number of desired children people say they want hasn't really changed in mm. several decades. So really what we have is the largest gap between the number of kids people want to have and the number of kids they actually have. And I think there's a lot of obvious reasons why these days it's harder to have kids fiscally, economically. And then of course, you know, a bunch of immigrants, you know, that's the other side of the coin. Take a bunch of immigrants, select them sort of meritocratic, using meritocracy, selecting the immigrants that will like best help us economically, um, you know, and then fill in the country. Because as Mike already mentioned, even, even if we had a billion people, which probably wouldn't actually reach a billion, but like, even if we did, we'd still be lower density than most your Western and central European countries. I think he said like, it'd be about on par with France, still way lower than the UK or Germany or other places like that. And yeah, we all know these places like LA and New York that are growing and overcrowded and have housing shortages, but most cities are actually declining in population. Most counties are declining in population, which I thought was interesting because I know there's like big ones like Detroit, right? You're like, Oh, you know, failed city in disrepair, but actually there's a few big ones like that, but there's a ton of just like medium sized cities that are declining populations, which, you know, creates a very negative economic cycle where there's less taxes so they can provide less services, which makes people want to live there less. And when people are moving out, no one wants to invest in new businesses or things like that. So, you know, it makes a very persuasive argument that, you know, when done intelligently, you know, it just be a huge economic boon to the U.S. And then we could, you know, continue to be the best country ever. So... So next, so my question is, why? Well, first of all, what was your view on that? I guess. Well, I mean, are you pro or con, like against like one billion Americans? I guess I I am now pro one billion Americans. It uh, persuaded me. It was. Um, it was. You were against it before. Uh, no. Well, I guess to be fair. I feel like, okay, so my position on immigration, first of all, I still think that a country has the right to, you know, block all immigration if it wants. As like a sovereign nation, you can do that. I feel like a lot of people, a lot of Democrats or pro-immigration people try to make a moral argument. That's like, it's the right thing to do for the, you know, it helps immigrants out. Mm. You know, these people get a better life, blah, blah, blah. And I've, I've always been like, that may be true, but does that like what we should really be looking at is whether it benefits our country. And that's been debated, but I feel like this book made a very effective argument that you can have immigration in a way that tremendously benefits your country. And this is something I've seen more in other mm -hmm. areas too, where like in general, immigrants on average are very beneficial to the tax base, to the economy, to new businesses, things like that. Um, and they, it had some good historical examples of when there was like large amounts of immigration, even not really well controlled or thought out still was either neutral or beneficial. And mm -hmm. so it's kind of like, well, if you did smart immigration, then, you know, then it would be, should be better than that. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, and it's obviously, and then it's a win-win, right? Cause like, obviously people who move from like third world countries that are much more poor, they're like very likely to have a much better life in America, even doing, you know, relatively low wage labor for, you know, our standards. But at the same time, they make our economy more robust. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, you know, they'll, they'll be like, the, they'll take our jobs. They'll, you know, do this or that. But it's like, you know, every immigrant is both a producer of labor and a consumer of goods and services, right? So, you know, it goes both ways. And in general, you know, having a bunch of extra people working makes your country richer. It's not actually that complicated, but. Yeah. So So I guess with respect to immigrant, so smarter immigration, I mean, can they control, like, can they say like you can immigrant to the U S like if you take up residence in Nebraska or <laughs> that was actually one of the ideas they mentioned. Um, God, what were they called? One was there was a few different names like National Restoration Visa, or other other things where it's like basically you just have to like they'll they'll identify cities that were like have infrastructure for larger populations that's going unused because they're declining and saying like, look, you just live there for five years, and if you do, you'll get like a generic green card that lets you go wherever. And a lot of people might leave after that, but even the five-year period would be beneficial. And a lot of people after five years would have, have a reason to settle. Yeah. You know, they'll have a right. job, a home, a family maybe, right? and they'll stay. So that is absolutely one of the ideas that's proposed. The other thing is just taking a maritime, like, you know, the, choosing immigrants, you know, intelligently in ways that, you know, I guess provide the most bang for your buck, you know, young, young but working age people, people who speak English, you know, people who have job offers, obviously, um, there's other, other countries have things where there's like point systems basically. So like you have different factors and the better you are, the more points you get. Mm-hmm. And I think even there's some legislation proposed by Republicans that had something, a similar idea, like copying that model, but it's super restrictive, right? Like you'd have to do, get a lot of points and actually reduce the number of immigrants. So it's kind of like, we'll use that basic idea to target who we want, but just make the total amount that you allow in way higher, you know? Mm. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I sort of like that. I mean, particularly where they can target people towards certain areas. I mean, I think that's that's not a terrible idea. I'm because yeah, we don't need more people in San Francisco, right? Exactly. Well, we could if we could if they would actually allow for appropriate amounts of housing. But at least right now, we don't need more people in San Francisco. You know, but a lot, of, like I said, when you when you learn that like most places are declining and there's just this like clustering into the most productive cities, which are mostly the coastal cities and then some sunbelt cities. And it's just like, these are becoming like these, you know, new mega cities where all the productivity and growth in the nation is really coming from and everywhere else is kind of like falling off. Right. right okay. Now. Before, before we move on a little bit deeper, I, I, I'm curious now, why did you pick this book? Why did you want to study this right now? Uh, well, you know, immigration has been a pretty big hot topic uh, maybe a little less this year, but you know, it was one of the central things of Trump's campaign originally in 2016. And at the time, I don't think I was really well educated on it. And this is a book that came out just a few months ago, actually. I think it came mm-hmm. out in like September or something. Mm-hmm. And I'd heard about it. So I was like, okay, this I'm like, this sounds like an interesting perspective. And it's like a well re, you know, a book that has well researched, you know, site studies and historical examples and stuff. So I thought, just thought it'd be a nice way to kind of, um, get a, get a more nuanced opinion or insight on some of this stuff. Cause it's, it's very much like a technocratic, like if you kind of study this problem in like a scientific way, 
you know, what would you come out as like the solution? What's like the empirically better thing to do? So what's the most surprising uh, counterintuitive thing that you learn from this book? Hmm. Um, Something that you, I guess, did not think about before. Yeah. Like I said, I think one was how many, the biggest one was how many cities were declining in population. Cause we, I feel like everyone talks about the cities. We know there's a lot of places where people are going in, like, you know, they're growing. Um, and that's what gets talked all the time. And I know what I guess kind of imagined before I'm like, Oh yeah, there's declining populations in small rural towns and, you know, podunk Nebraska or South Dakota or something. Right. Like, and I'm like, I don't really like, is that a big deal? But there's actually like a ton of just our mid-sized cities are having the same issue. Hmm. So that was one big surprising thing. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, okay. So basically, um, so do we just open a Southern border and they order, you know, the illegal immigrants just walk in, right? They, they are here already, right? Well, the ones who are here aren't across the border, yes. But, um, I mean, you could. Evidence suggests that wouldn't be the end of the world. It wouldn't be so bad. But I think you can do better by, like I said, choosing who immigrates and even maybe choosing where. Because immigrants do have a tendency to cluster in the exact same cities that we already have a lot of economic growth um, and population growth. So not that it would be necessarily bad, but it would be suboptimal, not ideal. Like if the best place would be to push them into the areas that are, you know, stagnant or declining. Right. So, oh. okay, go so there are many suggestions how to better choosing who to come here. Like selection is that the main strategy like choosing the people you want like i mean that's a strategy that discusses but i think the real premise of the book if anything is that just the economics point to that just more people is better hmm. um both as a country and a more local level and uh so it like yeah you should try to choose smart but it doesn't like that's not the real core most important part like it's hmm. really just if we grow the country We'll have a larger, more robust economy. Because look, in the modern economy, okay, so it, you like we go back 300 years ago, right? Your productivity was almost directly controlled by how much land you owned and how much productive that land was in terms of like farming or mining or stuff like that. But like in the modern advanced economy, like service, technology, data, information, these things are what really drives economic growth and productivity. Hmm. Um, and in, so in this modern economy... The more people you have clustered, the more productive they tend to be rather than in the past. If you had a bunch of people clustered, they would generally be poor because the land could only support some relatively fixed amount, which is why you had things like after the black death, uh, like standards of living skyrocketed and mm. skyrocket. They went way up in Europe because there were less people, but had to access the same amount of agricultural output roughly and things like that. But in the U.S., you know, in modern economies, a city declines in population, uh, works the opposite. You you start losing wages, you start losing jobs, investments, opportunities, blah, 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 goes on and gone. And it's pretty obvious, right? Like if you look at a city that's declining population, that's, that's never a good thing, right? There's no city that's declining in population and all the residents are doing really well for themselves. And like, this is great because we have less traffic. It's pretty much always like, uh, you know. 
oh, the economy here is getting killed and we're becoming poor. Sounds like a sounds like a Black Death example is a uh, is a argument against this. Like less people and better is the uh, like Black Black Death kill a lot of people, right? So the USA, the more people die, and then the the survivor has more higher standard of living. So. But that's yeah, that's in the old like that's in the old economy, right? Pre-industrial uh, revolution, really pre-true capitalism. That's how things worked. Because uh, you were, like I said, because you were much, land was really the biggest factor. Limiting factor in the bottom Limiting factor in terms of productive output. But now it's human capital is really the limiting factor, like the, mm-hmm. the number of capable people. And when you have a lot of people, you tend to get, you'll get more people, you know, like look at a specific industry, right? Like this is why industries cluster in things like, you know, Silicon Valley, right? So you have a bunch of, tech people and you have a bunch of tech companies. So the employees can go between different companies as they see fit. There's a market for their labor and the companies have a big market for their you know job hiring because they got people who are working in all these different companies and they all hang out and they trade information related to their job. You know, even if they're at different companies and stuff, they kind of like have these social circles where they trade information related to the things. So this sort of like has this compounding effect where in this modern, you know, in this modern economy where human capital is the main factor, it helps to have more people. Okay. Uh, Sorry, that was a long rant. No, no, no. I'm 50. So I'll say I'm 50-50. So I agree. I think targeted immigration is good. I don't think just absolute immigration is good. I agree. Like I can see the numbers. Yes. Like more people, you're going to probably have like, more money being like, it's going to be better for the economy at sort of a looking at a single value, right? I mean, because as you say, more people means more resources being uh, like purchased or, you know, consumed and uh, basically more resources being produced on the whole. Uh, but I would, I would argue, I, I don't know that how many of these measurements are taking to account. Like, so again, the Silicon Valley example, like, yeah, like the fact that these companies are clustered and these companies have access to more laborers and more uh, and the laborers have access to like more opportunity and things like that. I Like their salaries there are probably the highest, certainly the highest in the U.S. I don't know about the world. Like on par, like Silicon Valley and like Manhattan, you're dealing with like highest, like highest salaries, but you're also dealing with highest cost of living like most expense, like per square foot of anywhere in the world, like large amounts of homelessness, uh, limited, like, I guess other limitations, just like your day-to-day life. You just aren't like, I, 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 this isn't necessarily a measurement, but just like a mass of humanity that you need to encounter like day-to-day. So I mean, I guess those types of things is why I'm like, like I'm all on all for like, okay, if we can do targeted, like targeted immigration where we spread people out, like we can get that sort of economic number that he sort of seems to be basing a lot of this on. Uh, But we also maybe can, I guess, avoid some of the pitfalls of like that we're dealing with, with sort of our three, three, four, five major cities. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's true, right? Like, yeah, targeting the location would help with that. But I think when you look at, so 
pretty much none of our cities maybe Manhattan. It's the only one that's kind of somewhat approaching, like, I guess, maximum density. Sure. We have a huge problem in the U.S. of uh, basically not allowing dense housing. There's not really a different way to put it. Um, like something like the large majority, like 70 to 80 percent of developed land, you can't build like I forget the exact figures, but like a huge majority, you have to build a single home, like a single family detached house. That's the only legal form of housing in like a majority of the land that you can put housing on in the U.S. Even in cities, I think if I remember one of the examples, right, I think even Seattle, like a city that doesn't have enough housing, like 70 something percent of it is only single family detached housing, these individual homes. Um, And it's so, you know, there's kind of a really easy answer to the housing crisis, which is a housing shortage, which is legalized housing, legalized dense housing. You just remove the laws that say you have to build a single house. And in these super expensive places, it will be extremely profitable for developers to put up large, dense apartments. You know, suddenly the housing supply in our area can be literally 10 times, you know, if you start going to apartment buildings instead of houses, more depending on how high you're going. But let's just say 10 times. What was the reason behind not letting you build more house? Uh, I mean, most of the time it's a very local decision. So Mm. often it's local homeowners and landowners who don't want that sort of thing, right? And quote, their neighborhood, right? They'll cite things like neighborhood character, you know, historical tradition, whatever, or even some fear of having like the value of their land decrease yeah exactly because if you build them which is kind of silly because in what developed city is like the value of your land less like that's normal like usually if you develop more the land in the area will get more valuable but um and the important thing here is remember is no one's no one should ban these houses right like if you have a house like that's fine keep it you don't have to sell it but if people want to sell their property for a million bucks so someone can put up a high rise and someone wants to build a high rise and people want to live in the high rise, like they should let them should be allowed. But it, the majority, there's a huge amount of either explicit zoning regulations or other forms of regulations that essentially do the same thing. Like you have to have some certain amount of offset from the road and you need a certain number of parking spaces per resident that could, so even if, Denser housing is allowed if you need so many parking spaces per resident, it's impossible to build more than so have two units in sort of a property, right? Because there's just not enough space. But that doesn't make sense if you're building right next to, you know, a light rail train stop, which some of these cities in California have, right? They mm. have or building more like mass transit, right? Like if you if you live on a mass transit area, you don't need a car. You can just put really dense housing there and let people use the mass transit. So- I'll it's just say, oh, I was just going to say, like, basically, like, denser housing requires, like, uh, scaling all of the resources, right? I mean, like, so you're already dealing with dense, like, you're already dealing with, like, I guess a lot uh utilization at hospitals, obviously, during the pandemic is something that is talked about a lot. So it's like, if you have you know, 10 times the housing, you need to have 10 times the beds at hospitals and like your, and use mass transit. It's like, I mean, again, I'm thinking of like sort of the, 
bigger cities like Manhattan and San Francisco. And so like, I mean, they either have like, I mean, Manhattan is good mass transit, but it's jammed. It's falling apart. It's <laughs> so, I mean, you need to scale it up even more or like figure out a way to like fix it. And that I feel like all of this is requiring like a lot of money to be put into resources that are like already reaching sort of a threshold Whereas if this were done, like if we did the targeted immigration, which is why I say like you almost have that natural ability to like grow the city as more people come in, right? Yeah, well, it's again, it's kind of you do both. Like the target immigration is great, but like if in, you're serious about getting the country up to a billion people, yeah, there there are places, both cities that used to be declining, and you know now have got enough, or places where um, they were just growing already, and there's just still more people moving in. Like, you know, the population is going to get higher. You're going to have to build more stuff, right? You can't triple the population and not build more infrastructure, more hospitals, more schools, things like that. But, you know, a lot of the infrastructure in the country is on the decline anyway, right? So this is like a really opportunity to sort of reconstruct America for the next century. Mm-hmm. So what's not, I guess, why why can't you just let people, I guess, uh, let a Nature takes course, right? And that people just have more babies instead of doing immigration, right? Well, I mean, right now, our birth rate is dec- like is negative for population growth, right? Like mm. for per, per, like per couple, the average number of kids is like below replacement. So without immigration, our population would be declining. And I mean, we could like you, you could do some things to try to help that, namely around, you know, universal pre-k child care maybe extended school year and summer mm-hmm. programs basically you know the k through 12 kind of takes care of kids so parents can do other things kind of just extending that out to try to cover more of the time so parents it's more feasible for parents to have kids and then go to work mm-hmm. but like that's you're not going to massively change like you're not going to all of a sudden go back to people having four or five kids on average right like there's no way that's going to happen so while you can and probably should do your best to make rearing children easier and that would probably cause more kids that's not alone not going to do a huge difference i don't think yeah i mean i mean you just reward people like japan i think they have they have very uh like a baby crisis and they're not enough uh, people so they i think they also in japan they actually do some ads on tv and like, hey okay uh like in card insert like ads in cartoons was a hey parent now it's time to go have sex while no kids watching a cartoon stuff like that yeah tell me how much that one works i'm gonna i'll be a little bit surprised yeah so what what about like um what's why is the target number one billion Uh, i mean honestly that's just a catchy title i'm pretty sure Mm -hmm. and it was an interesting because i think it's interesting because it sounds like a ton right but then when you compare to most a lot if not most other like well-developed nations, like it's still less or around the same amount of density. Um, so I think it's just mostly just like, it's not, I think it's less about, you know, hitting some specific number and more about, well, one supporting people having kids so they can do it, have as many kids as they want, but in more in general, also just supporting immigration as a policy for economic growth, um, you know, to ensure America's dominance in the 21st century. What about people worrying about like the changing face of America? Like, if you let different, more different, diverse people in, 
right? And the whole American of like the characters is going to be changed, right? Uh, I mean, yes. Uh, that wasn't a serious concern that I was addressed by the book mm. because, uh, you know, I think that concern basically amounts to I'm racist and I don't want non-white people in the country. Okay. I don't know if there's a better way to put it. I'm not trying to straw man anti-immigration people here, but, you know, you can still have immigration from Europe and stuff, but most of those countries are well off. So I think there would be less interested, you know, people, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's really a big concern. And, mm. you know, there's still a lot of white people in the U.S., hundreds yeah, that, of millions, I believe. So I'm mm-hmm. not too concerned about, you know, that just yet. What about jobs, though? Do we have enough jobs to support all these like, new people coming in? Immigrants create jobs. Ah. So, that's, so this is, I think it's called, if I remember, the lump labor fallacy or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like when an immigrant comes in and takes a job, right, they go work. They don't then like return from that job and, and just like sit in a box for like 16 hours until their next shift starts, right? They need a place to live. They got to buy food, buy water, buy clothes, buy medical care, buy smartphones and TVs and whatnot. So they're creating new demand that will create new jobs, right? People got to provide all those goods and services to them. So they, they create jobs, especially if you get like the, you know, like young working ones, right? Like you get one people who are like 18 to 28 or something that, you know, ready to just like enter their prime working age right off the back. That's a huge economic win. You didn't have to spend all the resources to like educate and like raise them as children. They just enter in productive members of society. Boom. Win-win. Hmm. So how do you make sure you've got the right people in? I guess productive people, right? Is that uh, a topic this? I mean, you can like, obviously one thing is like people who already have like job offers, like companies want to hire them, you know, mm-hmm. that should be, let's say we do this point system, right? So you need to get enough points. If someone already has a job, that's that should be a huge amount of points because it s- suggests they will be productive. If they have useful skills, um, including they can speak English, you know, they know construction or farming or something else. You know, that's more points, more likely to be a productive worker on a men. I mean, it's not like, and, you know, we, you can also do things. I think we already do where like immigration, immigrants have limited access, much more limited access to like welfare and social services. Right. So it's not like they can come here and then collect food stamps and then just like chill. Right. Like, you know, and I think that's fine. Be like, Hey, look, it's fine if you want to come here, but you're going to have to like pay into the tax system for a while before you get access to the full social you know, services and stuff. So, you know, they basically have to be productive and get a job. But what about more people will be more means more crimes, right? I think if you check the statistics, immigrants do crime at lower rates than the native born population. Maybe because they're not reported. Maybe. Mm. Um, I mean, I think crime is more of an issue with education and economic opportunity. Mm. And so if you had immigration that resulted in like slums where people were just poor and had no opportunity, I think that could definitely increase crime. But if you have good immigration that integrates everyone in an effective way, uh, it would probably be no more or even less crime because generally when people have their own economic opportunity, uh, crime goes down when things are good, you know, it's not. 
Reasons for targeted immigration. So did they suggest how to implement it in the book? I mean, there were the 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 ideas there were the ideas there were slightly more fleshed out versions of what I've kind of said already, but it wasn't like a you know, it's not like he had a bill prepared to like submit to Congress, but you I know. see, I just just basically making an argument for more immig- more immigration. Mm-hmm. More immigration and more people. Okay. But why like does said, it have to be why does it have to be targeted? Like why do you need meritocracy? So like like I said, honestly, the the argument suggests that even if it wasn't mm. meritocrat, like it would still be beneficial. Mm. But we can maximize the benefit by choosing who comes. I mean, I think that's a no brainer, right? Like there are some immigrants who will be more productive and better for the country than others. Um, you know, if we select mostly them, we'll have more benefits, you know, get more doctors because we'll need more healthcare workers, right? Boom. Big win. Okay. But what about Steve Jobs' father, I guess? Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs' father, an immigrant? Yeah. I mean, a ton he of... Was just a, he was just a normal Syrian who came here and just doing the restaurant jobs. A ton of businesses are started either by immigrants or the children of immigrants. Like they're actually have a really high rate of like starting new businesses and startups and stuff. Yeah. Um, which obviously generate a lot of economic growth and productivity. So, you know, but a, but a meritocracy in this point system, a selection target immigration, you are of these people are not going to qualify, right? Cause they are not very productive based on whatever the system that you're going to implement right are you saying steve jobs dad wasn't productive yeah based on your like he's not a doctor he's not you know engineer you know stuff like that i don't so i mean so there's two things here yeah he's gonna be in the low lowest level of like people that you're gonna select would he like i mean that's the thing the lowest level of people would probably be someone who's like 70 and doesn't speak english right and like they're not gonna be able to do anything (laughs) useful uh, they're not going to be raising kids or really doing anything. So I think the point was like, sure, you can have a, you can have this point system or whatever selection process, but it's think of it less like a way to choose just the right people and more like a way to filter out the bad apples or, you know, mm-hmm. the, the ones that you like aren't good. I think because the assumption is that most people who would want to immigrate probably would be productive. You don't need to be a doctor. You don't need to start a new business to be productive and create a positive, you know, addition to the economy. If you just come here and you work your gen- like someone who just works their generic job, I would argue is productive for the economy, right? They just come here, they work for 40 hours a week for 30 plus years, you know, they've done a job, they've done a service. They and then they spend that money back into the economy. That's what drives, you know, capitalism. Yeah. So, yeah, go ahead, Mike. You could give like people a physical and like an IQ test. <laughs> you could. I don't know. You know what I call? You know. You know what I call that? Eugenics. <laughs> Eugenics. <laughs> well, I'm not yeah. saying you. I'm not saying you, we bring them in or we sterilize them. I'm saying that would be a way to like, if people are sickly, we don't particularly want them to because they're drawing on healthcare resources and they're not necessarily contributing. And if they're like insanely stupid, I guess I don't know. 
or like, I mean, really, I guess he would more do a physical and, uh, like check like criminal history, like indications of them being like potential dangers to whatever society they live in. So criminal history, like history of violence, history of like radicalism, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're on, they were on Facebook two years ago saying, you know, death to America, then, you know, maybe you don't let them, right, in, but right. you know, yeah. I mean, as basically the U.S. is the place with the greatest economic opportunity, a lot of high achievers from other countries would be interested in coming here. And there there are plenty that we don't allow right now or make it very difficult, which is just silly. Like, I mean, you could you could I guess you could say I wouldn't call this eugenics, but, you know, allowing the people who are like, you know, smart, capable, high achieving to like come to the U.S. I mean, I how many of our big success stories through like history are like immigrants, right? Einstein, Tesla, you know, Tesla, isn't, isn't, uh, what's his name? Elon Musk. Isn't he an immigrant? South Africa. Yeah. Well, to be fair, he did not create, he did not create Tesla. Well, he created, he helped create what? He, what bought, it actually, he, he bought it from someone else. Someone, some American already invented the Tesla and the, the electric cars and then, he just took it over. <laughs> yeah. No, that's true. He he was PayPal, right? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so so to wrap this up, what I would say in the modern discourse on immigration, the fundamental, I guess, difference between what this book suggests and what people who are against it is the idea that immigrants will like cost us. You know, there will be a drain. You know, you have to pay taxes to support them, this other stuff. But and it, both this book and other things I've seen seems to strongly suggest that it's not true. And it, especially if you do it intelligently, immigration is just going to be an economic benefit, which is it's a win-win, right? Helps them, helps us. Why not? So the last time you mentioned, uh, I guess the, you say the, the book is very much evident, evidence-based. Did you find it that way? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, you- like it cites a decent, you know, it cites a lot of stuff, papers, studies, historical events, things like that. So it's not just some guy ranting about his opinions, right? Like it's fairly backed up by evidence. Hmm. Okay. I, I, I can see anti-immigration, I guess, anti-immigration books, could, they could also cite a lot of, you know, historic facts, you know, basically cherry picking, right? Data, facts to back up their conclusion there's something called what is it there, there's some survey like some university does a survey of economists like professional mm. or academic economists and i know i've seen the question of basically does immigration make like the average american richer and this like the large consensus was yes it does so i think I mean, I'm not an economist. If we could get one on the podcast, that'd be cool. But I think the consensus of the economic field is that immigration is beneficial. It's not, it's not like a, you know, it's maybe not as one-sided as climate change, but I think it's similar, like a large agreement. Well, I, I think a lot of people would argue about whether that's the right question. It becomes a nuance of like, is it beneficial to, you know, our poor Americans who are laborers, like, you know, the right. ones who suffer, right? Things like that. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I guess. I mean, there's a lot of different, I mean, a lot of people, what it boils down to is it, is it beneficial to me? And <laughs> that's mm. a whole, obviously there's no answer to that. So. 
I mean, that's why they should have never allowed those automated looms to mm-hmm. get rid of those poor Ludites' jobs, you know, because it wasn't right. beneficial to them. Yes. So. Mm. Okay. But yes. But is the American have the enough the structure? Is it ready to? I mean, can it sustain like more people? Like, yes. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, like I like I said, you you'd have to build more stuff, right? If you mm-hmm. like really started driving population growth, but there's a most, I say there's a lot of places, most places have declined in the U S have declining populations, which means we have a large amount of underutilized infrastructure, housing, buildings, et cetera, already exist just in different places from where there's really economic growth, which is where everyone moves to because they want good jobs. Hmm. Yeah. That's why people want to come in, live in Detroit for five years and then, you can go anywhere else. And then once Detroit's okay, then people can live in Boise for five years and then just keep picking cities until we have a city about two hours apart from each the next closest city. Maybe that, do a few cities at once, but you know, yeah. however, <laughs> however it goes. That doesn't sound like the land of freedom that American represents. It's yeah. Well, we can say you immigrate to the U.S. and you get freedom with conditions, and you got to meet those. And after five years, you get full American freedom ship. Mm. Sort of like purgatory, right? Like America <laughs> is heaven. You live in purgatory for five years. Detroit's purgatory. purgatory. <laughs> yes, in this case, Detroit is purgatory, or Boise, or you know, uh, Des Moines. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we should knock down the walls on the southern border, just net on the Mexicans in then, right? Well, you know, I wouldn't bother knocking it down. That seems like a waste of resources, but, uh, you know, but not liars. continuing building it. <laughs> but, you know, a side note, who builds a wall anymore? I think we've talked about this on the podcast, maybe at oh, least sucks. together. Autonomous drones flying along the border, so much more cost effective. But... <laughs> No, whatever. That's a side to discussions. What do you mean? You guys love the walls four years ago. <laughs> I mean, it was a fun meme <laughs> for Trump's campaign. I don't uh-huh. believe I ever suggested it would actually be effective. But no, no based I, on my memory, you were pretty adamant about it. You was you were arguing that it's super effective. Super effective? I don't think so. <laughs> No. I mean, I still am in favor of controlling immigration to a degree, but I'm more on board with this idea. Like, if we actually use targeted, like, if we use smart techniques for immigrants, then I'm all for it. And as I said, like, I think I, I, I agree with Matt's point that, like, you don't need every immigrant to be, like, a highly published, you know, medical doctor or something like that. I mean, you can just let normal people in. It's just vetting them in a way that's like okay yeah this person like if this person like is allowed in it's very likely that they'll they're healthy enough to get a job work for a long time and be productive citizens um and i think naturally that does help things over time but well, i'm i'm still not 100 percent convinced about just letting people in and live where they want because I, I i do feel like a lot of people tend to immigrate to sort of places that are are like because as much as it, it would be nice to just be like oh yeah we're gonna just oh, just do a total overhaul of our infrastructure like the it'll take money time. it'll take time whereas yeah. i think if people are targeted to these cities where maybe like the infrastructure sort of 
well, like can be scaled. Like they have some level of infrastructure that fits a smaller slash medium sized city. I mean, the the ability to sort of build a new and scale uh, may be easier than sort of doing an overhaul on like these like these areas where it's like the infrastructure is sort of already burdened and like needs an overhaul already. Like, because yeah, scaling it up is not going to be a fast process. I think he called it the Heartland Visa, is what he would call it. Yeah, visas for Heartland America. So we get the Heartland Visa, and then we ban on a federal level single house or single family detached house zoning. Boom, America's fixed. Those two things. That's all you need. My plan for immigration when I run for president will be like. I I, I want to say America no longer has flyover states. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. That said, I imagine in the current political climate, a lot of the people in those places might not be happy about this idea. <laughs> some of, there'd be mixed. There'd probably be some who'd be like, "Yes, like my business is dying. Like this sounds great." But there's other people who are going to be like, "They're sending you know foreigners to take over my town," right. and I'm not happy about this. I earn fifty thousand dollars a year and can have like a relatively nice house. And if if this happens, I may not. But yes. So no, but I mean, it, like in those places, like I could easily see, like oh, like we have doctors coming in, like who are like talented, you know, surgeons, like immunologists, like all these oncologists, and it's like okay, like now, essentially now, like so, no, no longer is it just like Brigham and Women in Boston you know, cedar cyanide at LA and, you know, uh, whatever the big one is in New York. Like, you know, those are like the hospitals in the country. Like, well, now we have like a really good hospital in, you know, Alabama where, you know, with these three, like, or with, you know, these different immigrant doctors coming in who have specialized training. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it would be beneficial to have like that throughout the country where it's like basically in each, subsection of the country we have like a few hospitals that are like world renowned so mm-hmm. yeah and i mean similarly obviously you can go through that for each profession so i mean you get architects and builders and slowly scale up the country you know from sea to shining sea <laughs> lots more uh growing productive cities right all over so yeah so what are the main anti-immigration arguments out there? I, you know, I think most people think immigrants will be bad for the economy or crime. One of the two, right? Yeah. Either, they, either they're lazy and just trying to take government handouts so they'll be a drain. Or by taking a job, when case they're not lazy, they're somehow stealing a job from an American, yeah. which is bad. And then, or three is just, you know, they're going to commit a bunch of crime, which is bad. So I feel like those are the three things I've heard. Mm. But, um, you know, the first one's pretty easy to deal with. We can just say, you know, if you want to immigrate, you got to work at least for, you know, some amount of time. And then when you become a citizen, you can be lazy like Americans. Mm. Um, and then the second one, I, it's just an economic fallacy, right? Like it doesn't make any sense when you, if you really stop and think about it, it doesn't make any sense because they have to consume resources along with providing labor. So it's like both sides of the equation. It, it, this, this reminds me, immigration reminds me of both automation and free trade in that people are very concerned about like 
their job being taken, whether it's a robot or, you know, a Mexican or someone in China at a factory. But like in every case in general, letting the market do its thing will make a more productive economy. And okay, so maybe there might be an individual who, you know, loses in this, these equations, right? Like if your job's the one automated by a robot away, yeah. like mm-hmm. that does kind of suck for you. But we were very aware of how automation and progress has improved society, you know, made us richer and wealthier, provided, made basic needs like clothes and food relatively ch- so cheap to the point that like, like it, you know, no one really worries about it anymore. Very little. Yeah, yeah but because they are not taking your job away, right? They are taking this Joe Plummer in some destroyed area, right? Yeah, well, look, so yeah, so the, the result, the answer to all these, to immigration, to free trade, to automation is all the same. You should provide an adequate social safety net so people can deal with the changing and improving economy. Look, we can never have progress without change, okay? Mm. Economists call this creative destruction. Mm. Um any progress will result in change, which will result in someone losing. Losing because when you change from what we have now to what to something else, the current stakeholders, some of them are going to lose out. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's impossible. So unless you want to just like freeze at some point and say this is as good as we're ever going to get it, you have to accept that some people are going to lose in some of these, you know, trades. And as long as the nation as a whole is benefiting, you know that on average people are getting better off. And then you provide so, a basic social safety net that can help these people deal with it when they lose their job and things like that. And, you know, if we have a larger, more richer nation, you have more money and taxes and resources to provide those basic services for people in need. So it's a, you know, win-win. So what, what if, so what if you are the one losing your job, right? You're going to be hating this, right? I mean, you know, I would guess you, would you, you, sacrifice you find your a new job. job. Would you sacrifice yourself on a greater good? Sacrifice myself, sacrifice my job. Look, if some, you know, you know, I know that, I don't know. I guess if someone can, look, you just got to, it's weird because the job I'm doing right now, like no one can really come in and do it. You're the only one who would kind of be able to shoot actually. (laughs) But, uh, you know, like in the future, like there's, like you have a large economy. There's not one job, right? Like Mm -hmm. you'll you lose your job, you get a different job. It's not like, I mean, sometimes it can be a challenge, but especially if, you know, you have basic assistance, it shouldn't be the end of your life. You shouldn't base your whole life around like one job in one spot. You know, that's like it. That's your whole lifeline to existence is one job. That's a problem in the first place that, you know, it's a situation no one should be involved in. Put in. Some, but some people are like that. Sometimes they, they, when they lose it, some people, when they lose a job, they, sometimes they just not kill themselves, right? And then they just like let themselves go, actually. I mean, cause they really got attached to the job. So I guess my point is that it's easier for you, easier for you to say, cause you are not directly impacting, right? I mean, that's true. So, you know, that's absolutely true. But, um, I think all I can say to this is take the utilitarian approach. Do what benefits the most people, first of all. And then, again, as we make our economy and country richer, more prosperous, use taxes to skim off some of that prosperity and help the people who lose out. Because there are always losers, right? Like, this is how it happens. People lose in these situations. Someone gets screwed over. Um, mm. You know? So you help them out. And that's I think that's the best. I think that's the best answer you can do, right? There's no magical world where everyone 
always wins everything. We don't have a post-scarcity society yet where we can all just have whatever we want and never have to work unless we feel like it. You know, that doesn't there, exist yet. There is. There, it does exist. It's called socialist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wasn't what wasn't uh, it the Soviet Union that said, like, he who does not work does not eat or something like that? I believe that was posters they had. Probably. Yeah. So I'm going to target targeted immigration, right? What about my, my grandma? She's not, almost 90, you know? You, are you telling me that she cannot immigrate in the U.S.? Uh, maybe. I don't know. So there's, I mean, we've had family immigration, right, for a while. Mm. And uh, I don't think it's been a problem. So, you know, mm. I would right. say, I would say similarly, that I mean, that could factor into the equation, right? If you already have family there that can provide like a safety, like a social, a safety net for you, uh, you know, a family can introduce you into the country, the system, you know, they can help you get things figured out and stuff. That seems like a good reason to encourage that. You're like, yeah, it makes sense. Beyond just being nice for families, you assume if someone has family, they should be able to integrate a lot more easily if you already have family members established, right? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to, because when you were talking about the, so, like the sort of people who lose out as part of a system change, I was thinking like, well, hopefully they have family who are part of those that benefit and like the family helps take care of them. And similarly with like, if people are coming into the country and they have family, I think that is sort of a positive. I, or I'd like to believe that's a positive in their column. It's just, it's hard because family dynamics are very widely between families. So that's true. You know, you can, I imagine you would have some sort of confirmation, right? Like where their family member says, yeah, like I like this person, I could help them out or something. And not just, you know, you, you wouldn't just find out that your grandma is now an immigrant and like she shows up at your doorstep as a surprise, right? Like I assume if just like everything, right? Like if they say they have a college degree, you'd probably like check their transcripts, check the university, be like, okay, just double check, right? If they say they have family that they can live with, you know, you just double check like, hey, this is your family. You're interested in having them come live with you. Cool. Thanks. You know, so that's, you know, whoever the immigration office that's, you know, going through these things, that'd probably be just something they'd check. It's like a cosigner on a loan. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. And it's not like you need to be super rigorous. It's like you don't have to hold the person who is in the U.S. already to some standard. Like they have to sign a contract where they go to jail. if They don't house their grandma for the next five years. But right. like you just double check that like that's the at least there's someone willing to say that and. Right. That is their family and it's probably going to be fine. Like, I don't think we're going to have an issue with mass amount of 90 year old Chinese women somehow flooding the U.S. and <laughs> taking us down. Like, I don't know. You, maybe. Yeah, yeah, actually, no system do that already. Cause when I, when I apply for my mom, I mean, I have to sign say, Hey, uh, I'm going to take care of her, her expense and stuff like that. So. Ah, all right. Yeah. So it can, it's already been done. You can keep doing it. Yeah. And I, when you and I apply for you and I, your, uh, sister, brothers, you know, any any family member, you have to sign something like that. Yeah. So Almost in like, this, uh, yeah, affidavit and stuff like that. Yeah. In this hypothetical, you know, having family members who are like agree to sign up could be a, a big point increase, I think, because like I said, should make integration easy and smooth. Obviously, going to a country on your own is much harder, which is why you'd be more like, okay, are you like a good working age? You know, healthy, have some skills that we might want that, you know, more likely to be able to handle going to a brand new country on your own and actually like, you know, working, being successful. 
Mm. All right. Well, we've talked about this for quite some time. (laughs) So any final thoughts before we either end the podcast or move on to something else? I mean, yeah, I've been, I, I guess you've swayed me in the direction of I'm on board with this. It's not a super long book. Um, I mean, it's like less, it's like six or seven hours, uh, on audio. So, I mean, I've kind of already spoiled all the fun, right? But if you ever were like, I want to hear the details more, mm-hmm. you know, you could, all, it's not a long read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I actually, I actually did listen to the audio book. You listen to the whole audio book? Yeah. I think I have like 30 minutes left. <laughs> Then why are you asking me all these questions? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's just trying to be a good podcast host and get no, because I want to, up. I want to, I want to know what's on the other side. Like what's the, you know, the arguments on the other side. Mm. Okay, yeah. fair enough. I mean, what are your thoughts? So, on one hand, you're an immigrant. On the other hand, you're Chinese. Are you? Do you want China to overtake us? I mean, are I, you? Yeah, I mean, I guess one way to let China taking us is let more Chinese in, right? <laughs> <laughs> you take Maybe. over China, you take over American from the inside. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we can. If if you're from China, there's a lot of points off in this system. <laughs> so yeah, then 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 that system becomes very I don't know biased and right in a way. Realistically, how long term can like immigrants be like loyal spies? So like even if they stay loyal spies, their kids are going to be regular Americans, right? Like I don't think long term that's a real way to like overtake a country. Well, I think it's a big worry, right? Like look at what happened in uh, World War Two, right? Like you got an internment camp where all the Japanese got surrounded and put in a camp. Yeah, so that happened, but I don't think anyone says it was a good idea or necessary. <laughs> like that's mostly like this was a mistake looking back. Yeah, looking back, but in a moment, right? So I think those those like culture, those worry doesn't go away, right? That's true. That's true. I'm sure yeah. it happened. Um I mean, you know, it's not if we're having beef with a country, it's not unreasonable to say like, hey, yeah, maybe we don't try to get a bunch of immigrants from the country we're having like a you know, sort of conflict with, but so you are on a Muslim ban? I mean, a Muslim ban isn't a ban on any specific country that's acted aggressively towards us in any way. So, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. I'm okay with banning people who we who seem to have an ideology fundamentally opposed to American values, mm. um, which could maybe overlap a little bit. You know, if someone says, you know, they don't like free speech or, you know, other things then be like, yeah, sure. Like, you know, if you, if you don't align with the values we want as a country, that would be okay to say, like, we're not going to let you in. I mean, I guess I could just lie, but you know, it's at least a little something you have to at least be able to willing to lie about what you want in life. Mm -hmm. Hmm. All All right. right. I think it's a pretty good, uh, do you have anything you want to add, uh, this is pretty much the gist of the book. That's, I feel like I've, I've, I feel like I did a good job getting the gist out personally. I don't know how Mike, I guess is the one who hasn't listened to it. You know, yeah. should be the real decider. No, I mean, I, no, I mean, I feel like you've answered most of the questions I've had. I mean, at the beginning I was going to bring up sort of like you mentioned, uh, 
I guess incentivizing people to have more kids, but it, like we didn't really get into that. I was a little bit like, eh, I don't know about that, but certainly I feel like with respect to immigration and specifically like I, I I'm not sold on the just let people in cause it's going to be beneficial, but I do believe that having a targeted immigration with uh like not super high standards. Uh, I mean, targeting location, especially, I think is probably a good idea. Look, turn Mike around on immigration. That's my greatest achievement of 2021 so far. So Mike, how would you implement a targeted immigration? Well, I mean, I don't know that. Intelligent, right? IQ test? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the IQ test is, I mean, IQ tests can be, questionable anyway but i I mean basically healthy so like requiring basic physical uh prioritizing people who have family or people who have uh can clearly demonstrate sort of an easy ability to integrate so knowing english uh uh some level of respect for like the united states culture um and yeah and basically people who are gonna have skills that can benefit the United States. So, I mean, if you're, and, and I, again, targeting where they live for five years, I think actually helps with that. Like if you're going to Omaha and Omaha is undergoing like a shortage or, or like some type of decline in infrastructure and this person has experience and would be looking for work in building, then like, okay, that's a good fit. Or if the nurses somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. Nurses somewhere else. Doctors, you know, some type of surgeon in, you know, like Alabama is, you know, they don't have any hand surgeons, you know, I mean, (laughs) you put, we'll get the best hand surgeons from India, from, you know, other places. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, this person has a plastic surgeon is, you know, is a plastic surgeon and specialized in hands, you know, I mean, they're, there are Why, such things. So you you, you mentioned o- Omaha, Nebraska. I mean, Warren Buffett is in Omaha. So why why is Omaha now a popular place? I mean, Warren Buffett is there, right? So why hasn't he done anything to vitalize the area? Uh, he's buying up the cheap housing, yeah. and then he's biding his time. I know he does. Not any new conference where like thousands of people like go. Omaha every year to just to listen him talk. So, to be fair, I'm not sure if we've confirmed that Omaha is a declining city. Uh, I don't think so. I might have just been what? a thrown out name by Mike. <laughs> yeah, I just assume Nebraska is <laughs> a declining <laughs> Nebraska's state. Nebraska empty. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> See now, everyone from Nebraska who's listening to this podcast is just stopped. They're like, I'm done with this. Yeah, that's all right. No, they need to email us and tell me I'm stupid. <laughs> so, they'll right. be like, Nebraska's going to be the next Silicon Valley. Just you wait. Well, I'm excited. That's what, I, that's what I want. I want Silicon Valleys all over the countries. So if I can, so if I actually decide to drive anywhere, it's not like I hit New York and then I just, and like New York, Washington, D.C., and then I just wait to hit Atlanta. <laughs> Oh, all right, Shu. Was there anything else you wanted to cover today? I think we are pretty good today. 
right. Coming on time as well. I think the, that was pretty good uh, rundown on the one beating American argument. Yeah, it's a book. Oh, you can I guess I want to add that. I, I mean, just that I think we probably need to read some anti-immigration as well. Just to- you should do that. I brought in the pro-immigration book. Mm-hmm. You should bring in the anti-immigration views. All right. I mean, if you find anything interesting, that would be like good, you know, to hear. But hmm. no, yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, I'll I'll look and listen to try. Yeah, to... I thought I thought Maya was gonna be an anti-immigrant. He's not doing his job today. Yeah, oh, I'm just not ve- like I. I guess I just don't have like a super strong, like super yeah, super strong opinion one way or the other. I mean, I guess I am a little bit like strong, like just like letting people go to overpot like areas that are already st- have like limited, very, very limited resources or resources that are strained and priced, like essentially priced beyond what is reasonable anyway. Like, I guess I'm against that, but I mean, it, doing this tar like specifically like targeted by location. I mean, I can see it probably working. So. <laughs> mm. So I guess that's the point that I, I guess I, I'm not like vehemently like against like that's what sold the idea to him. I was like, yeah. wait, maybe this could work. Maybe this could be okay. Exactly. Okay. I, yeah, once, I'm not yeah, one of those. Break, sorry, go. <laughs> well, I'm just gonna say I'm not one of those people who's like the face of America needs to stay the same, or you know, we need it. So I mean, it's more just yeah. I just want people like I don't want any. I don't want more places reaching critical mass like Manhattan, I guess, where it's like, oh, if you want to live there, it's like $9,000 a month. And, you know, basically, like, if you go to a hospital, like, you may or may not, like, get, see a competent doctor, et cetera. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, because, I mean, that's, it's true that there's a lot of the places people live have housing shortages just because they're all clustering in a relatively small handful of huge cities. And this is, it's kind of all related, but. Right. Yeah, housing shortages suck. We're all who isn't pissed off about their rent? No, well, that's mm-hmm. fair, and and I agree. Like you can build up. Like I mean, one, another solution is to like just allow for more dense housing. But I guess dense housing has its own issues, right? I mean, I feel like crime and uh, in the case of diseases that may spring up in the future, like those are considerations. So, mm-hmm. whereas if you just let Omaha become a real city. <laughs> then. Uh, All right. I hope I, we hear more Omaha hate in the future, Mike. <laughs> I want you to start bringing Omaha facts about how terrible it is. I, that, that's, yes, in the future. Like, I, I don't know why I have such a hatred for Nebraska. I never really thought of Nebraska, but it's just like, I guess it's a, it's a big city in a state that I consider, like, very low-density population, so... <laughs> This is that coastal elitism. Yes, that's right. Mike from Boston going to live in California. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really all I know is Atlanta, Boston, and LA. So, (laughs) Mm. all right, we're going to call it for here today. Yeah, call, we'll call it quits here. What's our sign off? One billion Americans. (laughs) One billion Americans. Junto Club.